into the second half of our second hour on CFAX 1070 on a Thursday. That means it's time for Legally Speaking on CFAX. Joined by Michael Mulligan, Mulligan defense lawyer, sitting a comfortable distance away from me in studio today as I manage this bug that has my voice sounding the way it sounds. Michael, good morning and thank you for your time as always. Thank you very much for having me. I should say I uh, promise that I'll actually leave the studio once the interview is done. I don't, I don't plan to uh, get too comfortable here at the end of it. <laughs> and indeed, I will rely on that <laughs> promise. Supreme Court of Canada talking about international law and how it applies in Canada. Interesting story. I think it is. I think this is a, a very significant uh, case that was just released by the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, and the, the essence of it is, or the, uh, the underlying issue that the court was dealing with, was a claim brought, or proposed class action brought, on behalf of a number of uh, people from Eritrea, a country in uh, East Africa, just north of Ethiopia, yes. you know, it sort of borders the Red Sea there to get some uh, orientations okay. to where it is. Okay. Uh, and what is allegedly going on there is the uh, government in Eritrea requires uh, people to engage in compulsory... Um, service, which is not uncommon. Often people would, uh, countries would require people to engage in compulsory military service, you know, when they become 19, um, this sort of thing. But what's been alleged here is that in the guise of this uh, required uh, public service, uh, the uh, claim is that uh, people were being forced to work for an indefinite period of time uh, in a uh, mining operation in Eritrea that provides a significant portion of uh, income for the uh, country. It's a, a mine that uh, mines, I think, gold and various other uh, things there. Uh, and the plaintiffs were alleging uh, that they were essentially uh, being required to act in a capacity like slavery. They claimed that it was uh, forced labor, degrading treatment, uh, and uh, that it uh, violated uh, customary international law. So the interesting question was, well, can you bring a claim uh, in a Canadian court uh, to try to seek some remedy for that? And the connection to British Columbia is that a, a mining company in British Columbia owns a part of the mining company in Eritrea, uh, where these uh, workers uh, allegedly are required to engage in this forced labor. Uh, and so that was the connection uh, that led to this claim. And, and the important issue for the Supreme Court of Canada was, well, look, can you bring a claim uh, alleging uh, a breach of what amounts to what's described as customary international law? Yeah. And, and so that was a very live question. Uh, because there are all kinds of things which you'll sort of hear about people talking in a very loose way about um, sort of international law. And often you wonder, well, what is that exactly? Is and, there an know, international court? Like, I know there is, but yeah. how, what power does it have over us? I don't understand that. Right. And, and generally, and people, you'll see people referring to, for example, things like uh, treaties or declarations of the United Nations, saying, well, this is a violation of this treaty that Candace is signatory to. And ordinarily, those sort of claims are not claims that can be readily enforced in a Canadian court. Um, uh, you can't go to in a Canadian court and sue somebody on the basis that, hey, you breached that treaty over there, uh, unless that treaty has been incorporated uh, into Canadian domestic law. Like, for example, we've heard talk uh, now about this new North American uh, or Canada-U.S.-Mexico free trade agreement and yes. indeed there's been some agreement entered into 
but uh, currently we're, uh, each of the countries are working to implement it in domestic law. And until there's actually a law passed in uh, Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, the fact that you've signed a treaty really doesn't have any effect, and you're not going to have any success if you were a company say, hey, you shouldn't have charged me duty on that uh, thing I'm trying to bring into the U.S. until that country has implemented it. So the reason this case from the Supreme Court of Canada is so significant is that the Supreme Court of Canada found that that concept, that customary international law, um, has formed a part of Canadian law in the same way, and the court described in the same way that uh, the common law develops uh, in Canada in domestic courts. And, and this is the opening, and this is, I think, pretty uh, significant. So this appeal involves the application of modern international human rights law, the phoenix that rose from the ashes of World War II, and declared global war and human rights abuses. Its mandate was to prevent breaches of internationally accepted norms. Those norms were not meant to be theoretical aspirations or legal luxuries, but moral imperatives and legal necessities. Conduct that undermines the norms was to be identified and addressed. And indeed, the Supreme Court of Canada has found that uh, those sort of things, things like crimes against humanity or, or forcing people into slavery, uh, or uh, engaging in uh, things they describe as things like inhumane and degrading treatment, crimes against humanity, those sort of things, yes. which are often referred to as uh, those sort of crimes against humanity, international law principles, are now, according to the Supreme Court of Canada, incorporated into domestic Canadian law. The import of that, or the real effect of it in this particular case, is that the proposed class action in British Columbia on behalf of a thousand some odd uh, individuals who clear, claim that they were subject to this uh, slavery and cruel, cruel uh, inhumane treatment in Eritrea by the mine partially owned by the Canadian mining company will be permitted to proceed. So it's not necessarily a finding that the claims are uh, true. There hasn't yet been an award, but that claim will be permitted to proceed. And so this is, I think, a significant uh, change and advancement in Canadian law because before this case, there would have been, I think, some real legal uncertainty uh, about uh, whether that was so and whether you could bring uh, a claim of that kind in a domestic Canadian court uh, alleging that, you know, hey, there was some crime against humanity and I'm seeking uh, redress for that in Canada. Um, so an important case, uh, far from over in terms of how it'll play out uh, on those particular facts, and there will be other complicating factors, no doubt, things like, you know, are you going to be able to ever collect on uh, that sort of a claim if you succeed? Uh, but a, a very important decision, and I think one people should know about. Very interesting. I want to take our first break. Up next, a claim by an injured snowboarder. If there's a sign warning someone of a potential risk, does the location of that sign actually matter? The answer may surprise you. Don't go anywhere. A claim by an injured snowboarder can proceed. Michael Mulligan, set this one up for us. So here's what happened. Back in March of 2016, uh, this uh, young person who was 20 years of age at the time, uh, Mr. Apps, was uh, Australian over here, I think, for a couple of years working, uh, and uh, he decided to go snowboarding at Grouse Mountain. Uh, and in particular, he purchased a pass to use the terrain park there, uh, and uh, very sadly, uh, shortly after he started using the train park, he had a tragic accident, uh, suffered a severe spinal cord injury, and is now a quadriplegic. So that's the tragic background of all this. 
Here's a legal issue. He sues Grouse Mountain. Grouse Mountain says, oh, no, you can't sue us. Uh, we have uh, said that we're not responsible for any of our negligence. Uh, and they point to two things. They point to signs, a big sign that says, you know, essentially, if you read all the fine print, we're not on the hook for any of our own negligence. And they point to the back of the ticket uh, that this fellow purchased. Uh, and uh, the uh, so the uh, case starts, and the uh, trial judge originally says, oh, yes, that's right, uh, no liability here. Look at the waivers. Uh, and uh, the decision that just came out is from the Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal said, no, no, uh, those are not necessarily effective here. And here are the issues. Uh, the issues include the fact that the sign waiving liability was posted in a place where you would see it after you bought the ticket. Uh, and so there's oh, a, no. this is a, an issue which has been, the Court of Appeal has commented on. We've been dealing with this for many, many years, uh, sort of dealing with, you know, how and when can you have these exclusions of liability? And they point to the fact that, you know, we've got these, they refer to them as contracts of adhesion, waiving liability, and we're all familiar with them in terms of things like, um, you know, when you buy some software or something online, You'll have that, uh, you know, 25 pages of iTunes contract with a, you know, I agree button at the bottom of it. Uh, Does anybody know, actually read those? Yeah. I guess you're Seinfeld supposed saying to. You could probably insert the entire text of Mein Kampf into the thing. People, <laughs> Yes, yes, I agree, I agree. Uh, you know, who's reading these things? Um, so the courts have been uh, careful to narrowly construe the circumstances in which companies are permitted to uh, waive all of their own responsibility to not act in a careless fashion. Uh, and one of the principles there is that you need to, if you're trying to do that, like waive your own responsibility for not being careless, liability, um, you need to do, you need to clearly draw that to somebody's attention and you need to do it before the person enters into the contract, not afterwards. Um, and so the, the problem with, and there's this whole category of cases called the you know, ticket cases or back yes. of the ticket cases. Yeah. The problem with that is you've handed over your money uh, to enter the train park, and only after you've done that and the transaction is complete do they then hand you the thing which on the back of it in tiny writing says, you know, we can be extremely dangerous, and by the way, this is also a rifle range, and, you know, be sure you duck or whatever. <laughs> Look right? out for the tooth chipper. It's not just a name for a roller coaster. Yeah, that's right. So the Court of Appeal found that here, uh, the fact that the sign was posted in a place you would only see it after you bought the ticket, and the fact that the liability waiver was on the back of the ticket, and you only got that after you paid for the thing, meant that they hadn't clearly drawn it to the person's attention prior to the entering into the contract. And so the, the case will be allowed to proceed. There'll still be other issues, like, you know, was there negligence or carelessness on behalf of the uh, ski hill, this sort of thing. Yes. But I, I think this case also raises some, I think, important issues that people should think about in terms of whether we should permit these kind of broad waivers of responsibility. You know, the 25-page contract online where you click, I agree, uh, you know, and you've just agreed to turn over all of your personal information to some company so they can sell it for profit or these kind of things. Because what really happens if you allow a complete waiver of responsibility for carelessness on behalf of uh, companies like this um, is that we, all the members of the public, wind up picking up the ultimate cost. Yes. Because you have somebody who has this tragic accident, he's become a quadriplegic, and you know, public is going to pay for the medical treatment and everything that will be required for a lifetime. And, and there's a good, I think, public policy question about is that fair? Should we allow that? 
the alternative, if you said no waivers of uh, liability like that are going to be enforceable, the practical reality of that is likely to be that companies like uh, the Ski Hill in this case are going to need to purchase insurance to cover themselves in the event of uh, these kind of accidents. That's going to be expensive. And so what would happen is that the cost of the ticket to go on the snowboard terrain park uh, is probably going to go way up. But that's probably the real cost of engaging broadly in that kind of activity. Uh, and if the people who are engaged in that activity aren't paying the real actual cost, including the risk of becoming a quadriplegic, it means that the public, effectively, as the backstop, is going to be bearing all of that. So I think there's a reasonable argument to be made that we ought not to allow those kind of waivers at all, both because it would properly shift the uh, actual cost of that activity to the people who are engaging in the activity, rather than having the public pick it all up. Uh, plus, it might have the uh, incidental benefit of encouraging more cautious behavior. Uh, you know, if you were running a ski hill and you couldn't just waive all liability, you might be more careful about, you know, how the thing is organized or what kind of warnings or instructions are given or whether you're going to build some particularly dangerous sort of train park at all. Maybe you'd say, well, we probably shouldn't have the 30-foot jump or something, yeah. right? Or the, you, or the old roller coaster that's rusty. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So it might encourage safer behavior. Uh, and I think just as a matter of fairness, it's probably not inappropriate that you pay the actual cost of it and not look to everyone to pick up the or subsidize the cost of, you know, hand gliding or, you know, terrain park skiing or whatever it is you might want to engage in. Uh, after all, why should everyone else have to pick up that cost? And that's what happens when one of these waivers is effective. This is a fascinating case that we wrap up with today. Spills of sulfuric acid on a highway near Trail here in British Columbia. Vehicles, thousands of them, damaged by the acid. What happened? Yeah, this, uh, the actual event uh, is from 2018 up near uh, Trail, uh, and it's described by ICBC this way. Uh, the recent sulfuric acid spills in Trail have led to some of the largest claim losses ICBC has ever experienced, uh, both in terms of volume and cost. Uh, and what apparently occurred um, is that uh, a company, there are several of them involved here, uh, one company, Tech Metals, apparently produced this sulfuric acid, uh, then sold it to another company called International Raw Materials Limited, and then yet a third company transported the sulfuric acid from one company to the other to load it onto a, a rail train. And on two separate occasions, uh, April 10th, 2018, and May 13th, 2018, in that process of transporting the sulfuric acid, apparently a bunch of it spilled out onto the highway. Twice, a month twice, apart. Twice, a month of, twice. So apparently they didn't realize this spill the first time, and it spilled yet again. That's what's alleged. Good grief. And thousands of cars drove through the sulfuric acid, um, causing damage to them. And 846 of the vehicles have so far been written off completely. Because you can imagine the acid getting into the, you know, the engine or sprayed on the bottom of it and just couldn't be fixed, damaged beyond repair. And so it produced this enormous claim. Uh, and the decision which was just released was a decision on behalf of three different insurance companies, ICBC, uh, Economical, and one other insurance company. And what they were asking to do um, was to have permission to uh, sue these companies all together in one action rather than having to do it over and over. 
And that uh, the court has permitted that. And the concept that's at play there is a, is a concept referred to as uh, the a subrogated claim. And the concept there is that if an insurance company pays out for a loss, they would be permitted to sue on behalf of the person who suffered the actual loss. Like so, for example, here, uh, if you drove your car through the you know puddle of sulfuric acid dissolving your engine or whatever it might be, uh, and uh, ICBC uh, paid you for that loss, paid you for your car, the idea would be that ICBC would be then be permitted to sue uh, the individuals uh, who owned or dropped or careless and spilled the acid all over the highway to recover the money. Uh, and so that's what's going on here, and it's a decision uh, permitting that to occur in a more efficient way rather than having hundreds of individual uh, claims. All of this, of course, is fascinating in the context of the current proposals for no-fault insurance coverage in British Columbia. Of course. Because if we had a model based on Manitoba and Saskatchewan, these would be claims related to a motor vehicle. Yes. And then we would all be having our participation buttons on and not (laughs) concerned with who actually caused this loss. And the net effect would be, if we had a similar system to what was in those provinces... These insurance companies would simply have to pay out for the sulfuric acid damage for all these cars, and they wouldn't have any subrogated claim against the trucking company that spilled the sulfuric acid on two occasions. It would just be, well, no one's fault. Um, And, again, the problem with it's no one's fault, and we're all driving around uh, with participation buttons on, is that there's much less incentive to be careful uh, here, you can well imagine there'd be a powerful incentive for companies to really be careful when you're transporting things like sulfuric acid because you may wind up on the hook for very substantial damages when you melt a bunch of cars. Uh, yeah. In a no-fault model, you're not really responsible for anything at all. That's not criminal. You just, sorry, a bunch of acid spilled out of the back of my truck and melted your car. Well, I guess these things just happen, and on we would roll. I suppose the insurance premiums those companies paid would be higher. But realistically, how high could an insurance premium be increased to have the same deterrent effect as a large uh, cost award in civil litigation? I just don't see it. Yeah. And so much like in the previous case, in terms of, you know, what do we want to do in terms of like incentivizing, you know, ski hills to be careful, you have to ask yourself, do you want to disincentivize everyone from being careful to not do things like this? Um, and I appreciate that, you know, we could certainly save some time and money if we had a no-fault model and, you know, we didn't have this subrogated claim and, you know, the insurance companies were not permitted to go and sue the acid companies to try to recover the money for the acid spilling out of the truck. Yeah, that's certainly going to save some time. Uh, but uh, that's going to mean that when you have future incidents like the largest claim and loss that ICBC has ever experienced, well, the insurance company is just going to have to eat it uh, you know, maybe there'll be some tiny bump in premiums for the acid spiller. Um, and uh, really, nobody's going to have any particular incentive to be any more careful at all. So, yeah. you know, there's a real question. This this case, I think, brings into pretty sharp relief what the actual effect of something like the proposed ICBC no-fault regime is going to mean. It's just going to mean, well, it just doesn't matter. I guess these things just happen. Um, And sure, we'll save some money in the litigation process, but is that fair? Do we want that? Uh, Because I I dare say you're likely to have, you know, more of this sort of uh, activity if just no one's responsible. 
I don't think most people realize that their insurance company, after paying the policy that they have purchased, will in many cases engage in civil litigation against any person or persons who may have uh, breached their standard of care or engaged in negligence to cause that. You might say, oh, I don't worry about that, uh, what you did, Phil. I'm insured. They'll cover it. And then the insurance company goes and sues Phil for what he did. And I, don't, I think most people don't realize that happens. It does happen. And you'll see it in other types of insurance as well. Right, you'll see it, for example, in uh, like uh, home insurance. Let's say you have some faulty appliance that starts your house on fire and burns the thing to the ground. What's likely to happen there when you make a claim against your home insurance company is that they would pay you to rebuild your home, uh, but then you can be pretty confident that the insurance company is going to go and sue, you know, whoever built the faulty toaster. Yes, uh, trying to recover the money, and that's healthy, and that has an effect, and it works. Uh, and it has the effect of creating safer toasters uh, because no one wants to bear the responsibility of burning your house down. Uh, and when you, uh, if you move to a model where it just doesn't matter what you do, we all just sort of assume these things happen. Um, I dare say there's going to be much less incentive in the world for safer toasters and putting a lid on your acid truck when you're driving it to the uh, you know train depot. I'm going to have to read up on this one. I can't believe it happened twice. Imagine the sulfuric acid spill twice in, a, in just over a month. Michael Mulligan, uh, it is a, a pleasure as always. Thank you so much for coming in. We've got about 90 seconds left. Anything else you want to touch on today? Yeah, there's another case uh, I think that's worth commenting on briefly in 90 seconds, which is one people may have heard about in the news. And it was a sentencing of a man uh, in Victoria who was described as being uh, mentally ill and was taking uh, photographs of women in bathrooms yes. uh, without their knowledge. Obviously a very disturbing uh, case and very upsetting for anyone who might have been subject to that. But I must say, reading that one really caused me to reflect upon, you know, the sort of uh, services we're providing for people that are uh, engaged in that kind of behavior, because the description of the person who was sentenced involved mental illness, homelessness, um, and uh, obviously extremely disturbed uh, and uh, was doing things like being found naked in women's bathrooms and this sort of thing. Um, and, well, extremely upsetting and certainly understandable, you know, the sentence I think it was imposed was 18 months. It really caused me to reflect upon whether we're doing enough to ensure that the public is safe and people that are engaging in that behavior are getting the sort of treatment required to ensure they're not engaging in that behavior and the public isn't subject to it because I dare say, well, we may all be safer for 18 months. I'm not sure that when we release the person again with profound mental illness yeah. onto the street, we're all going to be uh, a lot safer then. And so I think that case uh, is uh, one which we should reflect upon yeah. uh, when we make decisions about things like, you know, what sort of uh, supports and services are we going to have for the mentally ill um, and is it appropriate uh, that we have people that are uh, homeless and profoundly mentally ill out on the street? This is the sort of activity not only uh, very upsetting for everyone involved, really unfair for everyone involved in that circumstance. It really caused me to think that we should be, as a community, doing much more uh, to ensure that we have proper mental health uh, supports. And uh, in some cases, I think we may need to look at uh, better residential uh, treatment uh, for somebody. At one point, we would have had uh, places where somebody would have gone and received treatment, uh, and uh, leaving people like that on the street, I think, is not an appropriate solution. Agreed. Michael, pleasure as always. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.